All right, good afternoon. I hope you're enjoying the nice breeze and fairly cool temperatures out there because it won't last long, you know. It's, it's going to get hot again and this building is going to get hot. But as we grandparents say, well, when I was young, we never had air conditions. So that still looks true. We're glad you're with us. Nice to have some who are visiting with us. We're delighted you're here. Uh, by way of announcements, just remember Wednesday night prayer meeting and then uh, baby bottles. If you haven't picked them up, please pick them up for Care Pregnancy Center and begin filling them up, I trust, and you will do that as well. Well, now let us give ourselves to the worship of our God. Take your Trinity hymn books, Trinity hymn books, and turn to number 288. 288 is the 149th Psalm. This is a psalm that Cliff will be reading in our consecutive reading through the Old Testament. So we'll sing it together before our brother comes and opens that psalm. 288 Trinity Hymn Book. Let's pray together and ask God to meet with us. Jason, would you lead us in that prayer, please? Lord, we thank you for our day, the time that you've given us to be together, together, and to worship you, and to lift your name up on high. We remind you. 
Amen. Maybe seated. So please turn to that Psalm 149 as we come to the conclusion of the fifth book. In within the book of Psalms, there's it's as if there's nothing left to say but hallelujah. And that is uh, how these last four or five psalms begin, and that is how they end. It's the Hallel, his praise, and Yah, the contracted version, contracted form of Yahweh. These psalms do not have uh, headers, whatever you call them, superscriptions, on them telling us who wrote them, and it's a good opportunity for us to remember uh, these words from the book of Revelation. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and you that fear him, both small and great. That's from Revelation 19, where I believe, well, I don't necessarily uh, have a conviction, but I think it's a very real possibility that there is the Lord Jesus leading worship after that great victory over Babylon. The saints are joyful here on their beds in verse 5. This is a reference to the sleep of death. Uh, our Lord often referred to, or the New Testament refers to the dead saints as being asleep uh, in Christ. So even these saints who have gone before and lived uh, before God, uh, righteous lives are now praising him uh, on their beds, so to speak. And that's a joyful thought for those who have lost loved ones. We sang a couple of songs this morning that both refer to the Christian warfare. Um, one of them from the Trinity Hymnal has the words in it, It is not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. It's not literal, physical swords that we use. It is what Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And there have been some sad chapters in Christian history of men who would take words like this and use them to justify, Constantine, for example, to justify physical warfare in, in the name of God. That is not, uh, I mean, Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not of this world, else my servants would fight. And so, and then the other song was uh, in the hymns of grace, and with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we fight with faith and valor. It is the sword of our mouth. Uh, verse 6, let the high praises of God be in their mouth, and a two-edged sword in their hand. That is a precursor of the new covenant sword of the Lord. Christ takes vengeance on his enemy every time the gospel is preached and a soul is saved. He has bound the strong man so that he cannot deceive the nations and he uh, takes Satan's prey out of his hand. Satan hates that. That's vengeance. We see it every day. We don't maybe recognize it as we should. This is uh, the vengeance. So, with that, Psalm 
149 from the NAS uh, 95. Praise Yah, sing to Yahweh a new song, and his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. Let them sing praises to him with timbrel and lyre. For Yahweh takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds, the high praises of God in their mouth, and a two-edged sword in their hand. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the judgment written. This is an honor for all his godly ones. Praise Yah. What a wonderful thought. Yahweh takes pleasure on all of his people. Isn't that great? Well, it's a delight for us to have Micah Smith with us this afternoon. Uh, he's been with us once before. I forget when that was. Exactly, because I don't think I was here, but uh, Micah is one of the elders at Maple Avenue Bible Church here in town. He is studying right now at Masters University, and then we'll be going on to seminary, but now it's all online. You don't have to leave home anymore, so uh, he, I think, still be in the area. Uh, if Micah looks a little tired, they just had a little one a month ago. Has it been a month? A month tomorrow. They had a little one, so we rejoice with them. It's been a delight to get to know Micah uh, over the last year or so, and we have lunch together every now and then, talk about theology. In fact, one time we entered into a theological discussion. I don't even know what the topic was, but apparently someone was listening. Next booth over, they made a comment as they were leaving about the discussion, and then they paid for our lunch. We got ready to check out. It's been paid for, and uh, we've tried to find that guy every time we've gone, but he's not. No, we haven't. But anyway, it's a delight to have Mike uh, uh, minister the Word of God. We appreciate him coming uh, and doing that this afternoon. But before he comes, take your hymns of grace, the hymns of grace, turning over to 368, Speak, O Lord, 368. Stand together again.
Good afternoon. It's, uh, it's great to be here with you today. Uh, last time I was here, I believe, was last year in 2021. I think it was, I think it might have been around the same time of year, too, or maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit later. But it's good to be here again and to worship the Lord with you. Um, as I was thinking through the psalm that was read, and as I was thinking through the words of the songs that we just sang, I thought of some of the most godly people that I've ever met in my life. We all know those peoples, those people, those people who stand out to us in our minds of examples of godliness. People who want to see the earth filled with the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, right? People who are joyful in Christ. And it seems like no matter what happens to them, they, they have their eyes set on him. And they're joyful in the midst of adversity. And that's really, really a special thing, especially living in a culture like ours. No matter what culture the church has inhabited over the course of its 2,000-some year history, there's been this constant temptation to assimilate. There's been a constant temptation to imbibe the values and sort of the, the smell, if you will, of the culture rather than living as citizens of the kingdom to come, rather than living as citizens of the new Jerusalem. And that's what our text is about today. Our text is about the promises that we have in Christ as citizens of the new Jerusalem. So turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and the text this morning is going to be from verses 18 to verse 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, to blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, that if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray that the Lord would bless his word. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word would be mighty in your people today. I pray that you would help me to exalt Christ. I pray that your spirit would fill us and lead us lead our minds into a greater enjoyment of what we have in Christ. And I pray that we would be encouraged to holiness, not by threats of your law and threats of condemnation, 
but I pray that we would be encouraged to live as citizens of the new Jerusalem that we belong to. First and foremost, because of the great promises that we have in Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I started out by saying, you know, think of some of the most godly people you've ever met. Now, do you think, if, if you have those people in your mind, what do you think that those people are motivated by? Do you think that those people are motivated primarily by the terror that if they, that if they disobey God, he's going to strike them down? Do you think they're motivated primarily by the curses and the threats of God's law? Or is it something else? I think that our text today really says that it's something else because Hebrews chapter 12 verses 18 through 24 is set in the context of the author to the Hebrews delivering a message to this Hebrew church about otherworldly living. He's just gone through what people call the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And he's just said in the first verse of chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which, so, which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Chapter 12, verse 12 also says, Therefore, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths of your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather that it may be healed. So this is a context. The context says that this is a passage of encouragement. He's encouraging them to holiness. He's encouraging them to make their lives distinct as they look to Jesus. And he says, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight the paths of your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather may be healed. So the beginning of our text in verses 18 through 24, verse 18, it links that exhortation that we just read in verse 12 in a relationship of cause and effect. Verse 18 is the cause, I believe. It's the motivating factor for what we see for the kind of life that we would see either in verses 1 through 1 and 2 or in verse 12. The cause and effect is vital because it demonstrates the power that is behind otherworldly living in the Christian life. What what is the power to make what has the power to make you holy? What has the power to conform you into Christ's image and to live like a citizen of the kingdom kingdom to come? To not imbibe or assimilate to the culture of the world. What is it that really has the power to do that? Are they just God's commands? Is it just that standard to which we would strive to obey? Or is it something else? I believe this passage has the answer. I agree with John Piper, who said that Christians in this world should not look at home, but they should be aliens with the stench of heaven all over them. Paul speaks of that exact same fragrance in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 15, 
But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So same aroma, same life lived, same godliness, but to one a fragrance from death to death and the other a fragrance from life to life. So, we'll look different to the, to the world than we will to our own people, those who are in Christ, right? So, whatever else is true about the church, it's clear that she should have the holiness of the kingdom to come stamped into her character. But the question is, once again, what's the power behind it? What's the power behind living, to the, living for the kingdom to come in the Christian life? And then, practically, how do we encourage one another to do that? When you talk to your brothers and sisters in Christ, how is it primarily that you encourage them? Do you encourage them by saying, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, then God is waiting to smash you? It's a pretty encouraging message, isn't it? Not, not really. And that's also, I think this text shows, that's also not the power behind Christian obedience. Yes, there's warnings in Scripture. I don't want to dull those. And I'm also not an antinomian. We obey the law of God. We love the law of God. The law of God still applies in the Christian life. So don't hear me saying any of that. The question is, what will give you the power to obey God's law and to live as a citizen of the kingdom to come? I hear, I hear a lot of preachers that preach in a similar vein to what I just said. We asked, how do we encourage one another? How do we encourage one another to live godly in the Christian life? And there's a lot of preachers that are all law and no gospel. You need to do X, Y, or Z, or you can't be sure that you're really saved. Now, if the author's goal as we saw in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight the paths of your feet. If that's the author's goal, and he's trying to encourage them, then the last thing that I believe he would want to do is tie up a burden and put it on the back of those Christians. Do we have any runners in here? Is there anyone that ran track in high school? Mr. Perry back there. And Ethan was a track runner too, right? How beneficial would it be to gather a 60-pound rucksack before a cross-country race and pick it up and put it on your back and then try to make it to the finish line? Would that energize you? No. You, first of all, you'd be feeling like you were going to be crushed under the weight of this burden tied to your back. And... Secondly, you probably, or you surely, wouldn't even make it to the finish line. I was reading to my daughter last night. Now, as he said, my daughter's only a month old, so this is more for me than it is for her at this point. (laughs) But I was reading to her uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. Are you guys familiar with The Pilgrim's Progress? It's a great analogy of the Christian life that John Bunyan wrote. And the the main character, Christian, Starts off, the story starts off by him learning that he dwells in the city of destruction and fire is going to be rained out of heaven and it's going to engulf the city. So he hears of God's wrath coming. And then this results in a burden being placed on his back because he's intimately aware of his own guilt. 
And then he goes out from the city of destruction and he turns his back on everybody and he, he seeks to get rid of this burden by any means possible. But I think this story links with our text today. Because this story, in this story, he comes to Mount, Zion, or he comes to Mount Sinai. He comes to Mount Sinai in the story and Mr. Legality or Mr. Law that he runs into says, over there, over there you can get rid of your burden. And as he comes up to Mount Sinai, that symbolizes where the law of God was given, as he approaches that mountain, the mountain feels like it's going to flip over and collapse on him. He realizes that not only can he not get rid of his burden through the law or through Mount Sinai, but also all Mount Sinai threatens to do is send that same destruction that he was trying to escape in the city of destruction. So what's the point? The point is that the burden of guilt heaped on the backs of God's people will only crush them under the weight of the law that they have broken or it will make them drown in despair. So in that same story, when does Christian, the main character, actually end up losing his burden? Well, he reaches the house of one called the Interpreter where he hears the promises of the gospel. He goes to the house of the interpreter and then after he actually comes face to face with the cross of Jesus Christ and he sees those promises of the gospel bought in the blood of the dying Lord. And as he stands face to face with the cross of Jesus Christ, that's when his burden falls off his back. So do we want to encourage one another to holiness to come into this city, Mount Zion, to live like we are the heavenly city that this text says we are? It's only through the promises of the gospel. So, let's, let's start off by looking a little bit at the Old Covenant, starting in verse 18. Verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages would be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, that if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. What is the author describing here? He's, he's, he's describing exactly what Pastor Calvin has been preaching through for the last series of weeks. He's been preaching through the Decalogue. This is the law of God given on Mount Sinai. And he's the, the author is speaking about the experience of the children of Israel at the foot of that mountain. And as Moses ascends up that mountain where God has descended on it. And God has descended on it in what? He's descended on it in blazing fire. He's descended on it in darkness. He's descended on it in gloom and a tempest. And then there was a trumpet blast and the voice of words who, who made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. That even if even a beast touches the mountain, it would be stoned. So the children of Israel are gathered at the foot of this mountain, and Moses has gone up into this terrifying scene where, where there's this whirlwind of fire and smoke, and there's thunder, and there's the voice of the living God. And the children of Israel understand what a terrifying situation that they're in. And they beg. 
Moses, don't let him speak to us anymore. That's essentially what they say to Moses. Please, you can speak to us. Don't let him do it because we'll be consumed. But the author's point is that we have not come to that. Notice, notice uh, the threats made here. The blazing fire and darkness and the gloom and the tempest. What message is that communicating to the children of Israel? It's communicating a message that goes along with the severity and the seriousness of the law that he was, that he was giving. God's law is eternally binding on all creatures, right? His moral law, just like Pastor Calvin has been preaching through, this is the law that we have broken. And as Israel comes to that mountain, they, 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 hear the, they not only hear the law of God, but they see these great signs and wonders on this mountain that communicate the message that you had better not transgress my covenant. God tells them on that mountain, you shall have no other gods before me. God tells them on that mountain not to make idols. And then he gives all these other commandments that go along with that core uh, set of Ten Commandments. But you know, ever notice how God tells them not to make idols? And the, what's the first thing that they do? They're afraid that Moses isn't coming back because he's been swallowed up by the glory of God. And the first thing they do is they grab Aaron and they say, Hey, make us a calf to worship. So God tells them and threatens them with these signs and these wonders, Don't make idols. And then the first thing they do is break that commandment. God tells them not to take foreign wives that will lead them into idolatry. And what does the history of Israel show? Look at Solomon. What does he do? He's led into immense idolatry because he's married all these foreign wives. So immediately we see at Sinai, these people can't keep these commands. And we're not any better than that. When I'm reading that, I should be putting myself in their shoes. I can't keep those commands. This is the law that I have broken, because I actually have broken it in my life. At that mountain, what Israel learned is that they are sinners in the hands of an angry God. That was the essence of that Sinai covenant. Verse 18 also talks about that covenant as what may be touched. Well, why does he say, why does he describe that covenant as something that may be touched? Well, not only did they come to a physical mountain, but the, the, the covenant blessings that were promised on Sinai were what? They were physical. They were earthly. They were temporal. They were carnal. God told the children of Israel on Mount Sinai, look, if you obey, I will bless you and I will give you this land. And you will come into, you, into it, you'll drive the nations out before, I'll drive the nations out before you, you'll possess this land, you'll have immense wealth, all the nations of the earth will look at your physical prosperity and see that you're the people of God. They came to what may be touched. These, these blessings that were promised in this covenant on the condition of obedience were physical, earthly, and carnal blessings. <clears throat> they also came to threats of the curse for disobedience. And that was, that was seen in the blazing fire and the darkness and the gloom and the tempest. But look at verse 20. 
for they cannot endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. What was God communicating through t- by telling them, if a beast touches this mountain, you have to kill it? Not only does he tell them the children of Israel can't touch that mountain, he tells them, if a beast touches this mountain, a, a being that has no sin, what is, what is he telling them? He's communicating that there is a separation between him and them because of their sins. So everything about this covenant is meant to do essentially one thing. It's meant to remind them, you are a sinner and God is holy. That law that was given, that law that was given in that covenant on Mount Sinai could never actually produce the kind of obedience that we see in our text today in the second portion of it. All the Sinai covenant could do was remind, of, remind them of their sin and show them the righteous standard of God and that they'd broken it. And then throughout their entire history, they reap the curses of that covenant. They go into exile. God graciously brings them back and God provides us a redeemer in Christ. But the entirety of what is said in the blazing fire, in the darkness, in the gloom, in the tempest, the entirety of the old covenant was meant to communicate essentially Two things. It was meant to communicate, you are a sinner, God is holy, and there's a Savior coming. Paul calls them the covenants of promise for that reason. Even even back in chapter 11, though, we see that Old Covenant saints weren't really looking to the blessings of that physical, ethnic nation of Israel. Turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 11. This shows us what the, what the ultimate real hope of Old Covenant saints were. Chapter 11, starting in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For... For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So even those old covenant saints, they weren't ultimately looking to what was promised in that covenant, in that physical ethnic nation of Israel, with blessings for obedience to God's law and curses for disobedience. They were, even those people, were looking to something better past that, that that old covenant was explaining. They were looking for a homeland, they desired a better country, and they were looking for a heavenly city that was prepared for them by God. Look at chapter 11, verse 39 as well. And all these, so all of these people that God has talked about, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, so they did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So those old covenant saints that received that law on Mount Sinai were ultimately looking to what we have in Christ. That's what they were looking forward to. That's what they were hoping for. God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What is the essence of the new covenant? 
Christ has made you perfect before the throne of the Father by clothing you with His righteousness and giving you all of the blessings of the Gospel in Himself. That's something that the law could never accomplish. All the law could do was threaten, and what we have in Christ are these great, grand, glorious promises of salvation in Him. So ultimately, the author's message to the Hebrews is that you haven't come to the mountain of the law that they came to. You have not come to what may be touched. But you have come to a covenant in Christ that makes you perfect before the throne of the Father. It's as if the author is saying, I'm not trying to motivate you toward this lifting of your drooping hands and the strengthening of your weak knees. I'm not trying to motivate you to that kind of life that patterns itself after the life of our Lord with a law that threatens your life with fire, thunder, darkness, and terror. I am trying to motivate you with the fact that your Father has given you all things already, freely, by His grace in Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the new covenant. The new covenant bought in the blood of Christ is one that promises these things, the blessings of God to us freely. So, that we've seen what we haven't come to. We have not come to what they came to. But verse 22 is the other half of the coin. It starts explaining to us the good news of who we truly are in Christ. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So there are about five different blessings of the gospel, or five, five or six, depending on how you group them together. There are a few different blessings of the gospel cataloged in this verse, in, in these verses, and meant to shape how we think about, think about ourselves as a church in Christ. First, these terms in verse 22, for you, uh, but you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, and to the heavenly Jerusalem. What, does, what do those three terms mean? Well, they're just repetitions of the same idea. They're explaining that just as there was that old covenant, Mount Zion, that the temple dwelt on, and just as there was that city of the living God with a physical ethnic people, and just and uh, just as there was a physical Jerusalem in the nation of Israel, so you have come to something far better. The author is saying to them because they were these their audience the audience here was living in a time when the temple was still standing, the nation of Israel was still a nation at that point. They still had to deal with the societal ramifications of coming out, coming out from among the worship of the temple and realizing that Christ was the fulfillment of everything that had been promised in the temple sacrifices. They were dealing with the ramifications of that. So what the author is saying is, you see this Jerusalem that's standing in your day? You see this temple or this holy city? This means nothing to you anymore. 
He's saying what you see in front of you with your eyes means nothing to you anymore. You have a fulfillment of these things in Christ. I think that this also has a present application that is contentious in our day. And the present application, I think, is that the author shows us that we aren't looking, I don't think we should be looking for a restored kingdom of Israel on this earth with a physical future temple like there are so many that teach today. He promises you something better than that. He doesn't promise you that there's a sort of a reformulation of this old kingdom coming. He says, you have come to this Zion already. That's what the author is saying. The author is saying, you you have the fulfillment of all of the things that that Mount Zion was promising, and you have them in Christ. Look at Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. Turn there with me. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19. So then, these Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What's Paul's message here? He's saying that Christ is the cornerstone of the new eschatological temple of God, this new holy city, this new Zion, this new Jerusalem that's the church of Jesus Christ. He's saying Christ is the cornerstone. He's saying you are being built and fashioned together in him because you have been made partakers of him by his spirit. You've been joined to the cornerstone. Peter Peter riffs off of that same idea in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. You can turn there with me as well because I think it helps to see these things for ourselves and not just hear them. 1 Peter chapter 2, and verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, to Christ a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. So who is this new Jerusalem? Who is this holy priesthood? Who is this Mount Zion? Who is this city of the living God? If you're in Christ, it's you. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. She is his bride. He has beautified her and glorified her. And she is also the beginning of his new creation because through his spirit, she shares in his death and resurrection. He has raised her spiritually from the dead and turned her into the household of God. Christ has established a new people and a new creation in his death and resurrection. And you are members of it. In union with the Lord Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of this new temple, you have everlasting and eternal communion with the living God. Remember how how under that old covenant, under Mount Sinai, he said you can't come? In Christ as Mount Zion, you have eternal communion with the living God. 
because he stands in the presence of God always as your righteousness. And the second part of this first, first blessing is you come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. As the old covenant saints were commanded to gather for feasts on the earthly Zion that have now been done away with, in Christ we have come to the glory of heavenly feasts. The celebration and the adoration of myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands of angels singing the praises of their great Redeemer, that's what we have come to in Christ's church. The supernatural worship of the church is being joined into the song of these supernatural beings as they worship the risen Lord for eternity. That's what we do every Lord's Day. And not only are we united to Christ, but also look at verse 23. Lost my page here. Verse 23 and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Why, does he, why is he talking about the firstborn here? Well, because being the firstborn son of a father under the old covenant had immense ramifications for how you were going to live your life. Why was Jacob and Esau, the fact that Jacob got the blessing and the inheritance, such a scandal in that day? Because the firstborn son was the one that the blessing came to. So the author to the Hebrews is saying, no more is there this hierarchy or this categorical blessing like under the old covenant. Rather, Christ is the only begotten eternal son of the living God and you've been joined into him. He receives all things and he's pleased to share all things with you freely because of his grace. Next, we see you've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Well, how is that good news? How is it good news that we've come to God, the judge of all? To me, that seems like I am going to have to behave or else he is going to judge me. It seems like that, that verse would belong under the old covenant. He's saying the exact opposite thing. He's saying this God who does demand total purity, this God who demands from his creatures total holiness, has been so satisfied, this judge has been so satisfied with the work of Christ for you, that you now come to him freely. We could read this as we come to the judge as our father, because he's satisfied with the work of his son in your place. and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Well, what is this saying? He's saying that the church, the community of the redeemed, are truly, before the throne of the living God, righteous ones. Remember how the, I was saying the old covenant? It was blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. How we deserve God's curse for our disobedience in our own lives. Well, under the new covenant, these people who deserve the curses of God are actually the spirits of the righteous made perfect because they're clothed with the righteousness of Christ who bore the curse on our behalf. And as we come to worship together, we worship the living God and we worship him as his children who are truly stand righteous before him in Christ. 
And lastly, the last blessing of this gospel, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, one that brings you into the heavenly Mount Zion, one that makes you the city of the living God. He brings you into communion with the worship of angels. He, makes, he turns you into those who are the spirits of the righteous made perfect, even though we are sinful. And he does this because he's our mediator. He's the one who stands between God and us. And because he's risen from the dead, because he's made total purification for all of our sins, he will never stop being our mediator. That's one of the most amazing blessings of the new covenant, is that this mediator is your mediator for eternity. And that's why this new covenant is better. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What did the blood of Abel cry out from the ground for? Justice. The blood of Abel cried out to God from the ground for justice against his brother Cain. Jesus' blood declares the exact opposite thing concerning you, if you're in Christ. Jesus' blood cries out that you are innocent because he faced the justice bar of God who is the judge of all on your behalf. Those are the blessings of the gospel. And what the author is doing here, once again to bring it back around to where we started, what the author is doing here is he's, he's telling this Hebrew church that I wish you would live like this. I wish you would live like you're a child of the city to come, a child of the new Jerusalem. I wish that you would live your life with this holiness of life just like your Lord did. But he's saying, it's almost as if he's saying, I'm not encouraging you to do that by threatening you with a covenant that is not yours. I'm not encouraging you to do that by threatening you with God's curse for your disobedience. Rather, I'm saying to you, all things are already yours in Christ. You are freely justified. You are freely adopted into the family of God. You belong to him. And now, out of joy and gratitude and thankfulness filled with his spirit, you can go forward and obey God's law. That's the power of God for not only justification. The gospel is the power of God for not only justification. The gospel is the power of God for sanctification in the Christian life. And the gospel is what will carry us home until we've reached the new Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for your son. And for the redemption that we've found in him. Thank you that he is the propitiation for our sins not only for ours, but also for the whole world. We thank you that we have been transformed into your people, into your house, and that we are citizens of your new creation because Christ died and rose again for for us. Pray that we would live in the light of that new reality and that we would truly be obedient to you, that would be a fragrance of life to life in this world but we would do it out of joy and contentment and gratitude in our hearts because we belong to Christ already. Pray these things in his mighty name. Amen. What a, what a wonderful gospel we have in Christ Jesus. 
In closing, take the hymns of grace and turn to 213. 213 in the hymns of grace. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me. 213 hymns of grace. Let's stand together as we sing. Have a good week. You are dismissed.